0: Well, thanks, John. John said that uh, I should tell you a little bit about what's happening tonight. Um, we're calling it a lamp in the darkness because there's a verse in 2 Peter chapter 1 that says this, We have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. So a light shining in the darkness is what prophecy is all about. It's a, a big subject in the Bible, And it's often one that we hear bits and pieces about, but we never really put together. So this year in the evenings, we're going to try to put together what prophecy is all about. A good place to start is with the prophets that didn't have very much to say. So there are 12 prophets in the Old Testament. The the Jewish people called them the 12, with names like Zephaniah and Zechariah and Haggai and Hosea. And uh, you might have, even if you've been a Christian for a while, have a fairly broad, blurred idea about some of them. What exactly was Joel on about? What's Nahum saying? And so on. And I reckon that if you get those 12 in place, in focus in your mind, it helps you get hold of the whole subject of prophecy and what it's about. And they're not that difficult to remember if you divide them into four groups of three. But that's what we'll be talking about a little bit tonight. And we'll be looking at the first of those groups. Somewhere in the 8th century before Jesus, 800, uh, or, 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 or 700 and odds BC, uh, people started writing down their prophecies. There have been prophets for hundreds of years before. Why did people suddenly start writing it down? That's one of the things we'll be looking at tonight as we look at the first group of prophets. So if you can be there, that's brilliant. Meanwhile, we have this morning. Let's just read some verses to 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 start us off, shall we, from Acts chapter sixteen, and uh, this is just breaking into a story that uh, we've we've looked at in this church all that many uh, months or years ago um, about the apostle Paul and how he was in prison in Philippi, and. Uh, what happened in the middle of the night when there was an earthquake and uh, suddenly um, everything changed. Let's just read a few verses. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. This is Acts chapter 16, verse 22. And the magistrates ordered that they be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the, in, in the prison cell, the inner cell, and fastened their feet in the stocks. Rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Sonus. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Strange question to ask, isn't it? If you've got a, a guy who's a Roman jailer, probably an ex-soldier, a hard bitten guy, who's been put in charge of the town jail, he doesn't suddenly start asking, what must I do to be saved? You might think, well, he's been shaken up a bit by the earthquake and uh, he's worried that the whole building's falling in on his head. But then the answer's pretty obvious, isn't it? What must I do to be saved? Get out of here before something falls on your head. And that's clearly not what he's talking about. And I guess he must have been listening while Paul and Silas were singing in the middle of the night. Because that probably didn't happen too much in a prison. he dozed off, he was asleep when the earthquake came, but he'd heard just a little bit of what these guys were about. They were praying, they were singing hymns. And they must have been relatively tuneful, I guess, because the other prisoners weren't objecting, they were just listening to them. And so the, the uh, jailer heard something about what these guys really thought was most important in life. And what they thought was most important was being saved, being rescued. And in the hymns that they sang and the prayers that they prayed, they probably used lots of phrases from the Old Testament, because that was the Bible in those days, let's face it, which talked about being saved. The book of Isaiah says, Look to me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. And uh, he must have got the idea that God's salvation, God's rescue plan, whatever that is, is not just for Jewish people who get thrown into jail. It's for everybody, everywhere. And suddenly that conviction came upon him when the earthquake arrived. That this was just not a random incident. This was God speaking to him and saying, look, you need to be saved too. Now through this year... In these morning sessions, we are we be talking a little bit about putting the picture together and working out exactly what it is that Great Parks is trying to do. Just to make it easy for you, there is a vision statement that the church has adopted, and uh, we're going to be looking at that. It says we want to see people... Uh, t- four things happen to people, and this thing is not happening. There we go. That's better. Our vision is to see people saved, discipled, equipped, and encouraged. And it's going to take us a whole year... Uh, to unpack all of that. Well, not the whole year because you'll get a respite from my voice occasionally and other things will be talked about. But this is what I'm going to be talking about this year. And we're going to start, and it's not working at all, I think. Well, we're, we're going to start by talking about what it means to be saved. And that will take us the next three occasions. If you go to the headquarters of the greatest football club in the world, no, I am not talking about Torquay United, sorry. I'm not talking about, I don't know, Glasgow Rangers or um, Real Madrid or Barcelona. I am, of course, talking about Glasgow Celtic, <coughs> greatest football club in the world. Actually, their, their stadium just this week has been voted the, the best stadium in the world, so it's, I'm, I'm not joking. But anyhow, if you go there, there is a trophy room which is full of trophies because obviously Celtic has the greatest football team in the world. have won all sorts of stuff, and you'll find cups, you'll find pennants, you'll find shields, you'll find all kinds of things. But in that trophy room, you will only find one photograph. There's only one photograph that's allowed in there, and that's the photograph of this guy. Obviously a goalkeeper from a little further back in history because he's wearing a chunky sweater such as people don't wear nowadays. And normally when you see him in pictures, he's wearing a cap as well. And uh, he's the man who's allowed in that trophy room, and in, 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 his picture allowed in that trophy room, and only his. Because he is the only person who's ever died for Celtic Football Club. He was a goalkeeper called John Thompson, one of the most incredible goalkeepers that Celtic's ever seen, had a tremendous record over the four and five years he played for them. He was signed when he was just 16, which was unusual in those days. And in, in those days, in the late 20s, he, he soon came to attention because he was just the best goalkeeper around. He played in the the famous international where Scotland beat England (laughs) 2-0. And it might have been the other way around, to be honest, if it weren't for Thompson, because he's just a very good goalkeeper, full of grace and elegance, fantastic hands, artist's hands, and yet very strong, capable of pushing the ball away. Very thin. They said if he turned sideways, you could hardly see him. But somebody who was just very athletic, very graceful. The, The height he could rise into the air used to fascinate people. He'd just tower over the opposing forwards and push the ball away. And uh, he died for Celtic Football Club. How was that? Well, one day in 1930, Celtic were playing their great rivals, Rangers. And it was late in the game, and the scores were level. And the ball broke clear to Sam English. This is confusing, actually, isn't it? Because it's a Scottish League match, and... Uh, um, uh, the guy was an Irishman and his name was Sam English. But anyhow, anyway, Sam English with the ball at his feet is, is coming into the penalty area and Thompson realises there is only one thing he can do and that is to dive at English's feet. It was almost suicidal, but it was the sort of thing that he was known for. He was sometimes asked, why is it that you take such risks? And He said, the ball is coming at me, I just realize I have to punch it clear. It's the one thing that matters in, in my mind. And so Thompson did that, he dived right at English's feet, and this is the moment just before the fatal incident. What happened was English couldn't stop, and his knee connected with Thompson's head. And uh, immediately there was a a, a blood uh, loss in in an artery in his head, the the, the skull was was dented, Um, he was just, he rolled over and over on the ground, and the whole stadium went absolutely still. And the, the, the Sunday paper the following morning had this headline, Death of John Thompson, Celtic gold gives life to save his charge. And, you know, it, I'm telling you that story because I used to tell that a bit when I went into schools as a Christian worker and tried to explain what it meant for Jesus to die on the cross. Because the story of John Thompson is about somebody who gave his life, making a <coughs> save. And that's what the Bible says about Jesus. He gave his life so that we could be saved. Jesus died making a save. Somebody whose life was given so that other people could live. John Thompson gave his life to his team. And yet, you know, there's a tremendous difference between what happened to John Thompson back in 1931 and what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago. I can think of at least three differences, actually. Number one is John Thompson wasn't planning to give his life He didn't get up this morning and think, right, I think I'll just go down to Parkhead for the game and die. He wasn't intending to do it. And if you told him beforehand that that was going to happen, he wouldn't have believed it. His old mum admittedly never wanted him to be a footballer. It was a Christian family. Thompson belonged to a small church in Glasgow, which is a bit like Great Parks in Origins. And uh, although Celtic is a Catholic football club, he was very serious about his faith. And uh, his mum didn't want him to be a footballer. She said, it's a dangerous thing. One of the days you're going to come to trouble. But uh, nobody really believed that, especially John Thompson himself. And uh, he wasn't planning to give his life. There was no reason that he would want to die. This is Bowhill Colliery, where he'd worked from the age of 14, where his father had worked for many years, one of the biggest mines in that part of Scotland, employing 2,000 people. And at 14 years old, John Thompson got a job which took him 300 metres underground, just hitching and unhitching wagons all day. And uh, it was a terrible life. Uh, It wasn't well rewarded, and when Celtic came along it must have seemed like an incredible thing to happen. He'd made a lot of money already by 1931, he was only 21, 22, but he had already plans to start a gents outfitters shop in Glasgow as a sideline, and become a tailor later on in life. What was more, he really didn't want to die because he'd only just got engaged. And Margaret Finlay, who was a really interesting girl herself, had consented to marry him, and they had big plans for the future. And it said that when Celtic Park fell suddenly silent as they realised Thompson had sustained a dreadful injury, there was only one sound you could hear, and that was a woman's shriek. Margaret Finlay realised straight away as she stood there on the terraces what had happened to the man she was planning to marry. So there was no reason <laughs> that John Thompson was planning to give his own life. But you've got to say, but Jesus? What about Jesus? When you look at the Bible, you see that Jesus' death was something that was planned way before he was ever born. In fact, the Bible calls him a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The death of Jesus was something that was part of a plan. Uh, If you look at what happened before he came, you see that, don't you? We've just been listening to the Christmas story over the last few weeks. And one of the things the angel said is, uh, to Joseph was, Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And that clearly implied something dreadful happening to Jesus. Um, because those predictions that were made about Jesus before he was born or just after he was born all contain that element. Uh, He uh, takes the baby Jesus to the temple on the eighth day of his life. And an old man there says, A sword is going to pierce your soul because of what will happen to your son. And right from the start, it was obvious that Jesus was on a collision course with disaster. And this was all part of the plan. When Jesus was there, you see him uh, uh, highlighting the same theme. Just before his death, he says this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And Jesus is saying, I can't ask God to take me out of trouble because the very reason I have come is to go into death and face it in the eye and do something through it that will save people. And if you look at what Christian said after his death, here's a quote from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament talking about jesus he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him jesus went to his death as part of a plan a plan to rescue other people to bring them back to god to a relationship with him a friendship with him that would never have otherwise had second thing about john thompson i can't remember that's not working is that he didn't achieve anything great by his death the tragic thing is, it was just one save in a football match, which, in the end, after he'd been taken off on the stretcher, still ended in a nil-nil draw. Nobody scored, nobody won. And when you look to the end of the season and you see how Celtic did at the end of that 1931-32 season, the only game in third, they hadn't lost any games uh, by this point, but they lost 10 games in the season, and so. In the sense, Thompson's death didn't change anything, except it gave him a much worse goalkeeper, but that's another story. It didn't do anything much. He gave his life for Celtic Football Club, but what did it actually achieve? And again, you've got to say, but Jesus. And again, the Bible makes it clear, it wasn't like that. Jesus said himself, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. In other words, I will not perform just one act of saving at the end of a football match. I'll go on saving, rescuing people again and again, down through the ages. And whoever, it doesn't matter who, enters in through me as the gate, they're going to be saved. That's why the Philippian jailer's question makes a lot of sense. What do I have to do to get in on this? How can I be part of this? Because I know that salvation is available to everybody, thanks to the great thing that Jesus has done. And again, uh, in Acts chapter four, in the the uh, one of the, the, the very first explanation Christians gave of their faith in Jesus, it uh, says this, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. In other words, salvation is universally available. It's obligatory too. We must be saved. And it's found in only one place. Only the death of Jesus makes it possible for people to be saved. Third thing about John Thompson, and then we'll leave the story, is that he left only sadness behind him. When he died, it was a traumatic incident for thousands of people who'd uh, hero-worshipped him all over Scotland. Of course, for his, his, his wife-to-be, it was dreadful. She did remarry eventually in her 30s, she had one child, but uh, it took years and years for Margaret Finlay to get over the happiness that had been snatched away from her. She was a member of the same church in in Glasgow uh, as John and she saw God's uh, hand uh, through everything that happened and she just trusted it was right, but it was a terrible pain for her to go through at that point. It wasn't just her. When the coffin was taken to Glasgow Central Station to be sent back across Scotland to the small village that Thompson had come from, thousands of people turned up at Queen Street Station in Glasgow just to see the coffin. The, the streets for miles around were blocked. And when the funeral actually took place, well, crowds and crowds turned up. It's estimated 30,000 people tried to get into the graveyard. There were hundreds of people who walked the 55 miles from Glasgow to Bow Hill just to be there for the funeral. And they walked, camped out on the hills, the craigs, behind Bowhill the night before, and then tried to get into the cemetery. Most of them couldn't. And there was such an outpouring of grief at the death of, of, of Thomson. It was obvious what was left behind. What about Sam English, who uh, was uh, responsible for the knee that, 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 that killed Tom? Well, um, it was not his fault. And he was exonerated in inquiries and all sorts of things. And he felt terrible about the whole thing for years later. His career was never the same again. He played on for another eight years. The following year, he had himself transferred to Liverpool because uh, in Scotland, he was just too much of a man. People thought, he's the guy who killed John Thompson. And uh, for the rest of his career, his heart really wasn't in it. And he gave up football eight years later and said to one of his friends, I have just had seven years of joyless sport. I've played football, but my heart's not been in it because of what happened through John Thomas' death. And all that was left behind was sadness and misery and a sense of loss. And once again, you've got to say what Jesus? What about when Jesus died? And again, the Bible's got a lot to say about this. Uh, Paul says, just a few years later in 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved through what Jesus did, it is the power of God. There is nothing more important. It's a miracle that happens in people's lives. As we were saying last week about Robert Robinson, who wrote that hymn, uh, John, John just showed his video of. A miracle takes place in people's lives to pass from death to life. And it all happens because Jesus' death was not just a sad incident. And uh, Paul later on writes to Timothy as well, God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there's one God. And one mediator, one bridge, one person in the middle between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all people. Jesus is the only one who stands in the middle and makes the connection possible between God and human beings once again. The connection that's been broken by human rebellion, human sin, human selfishness. The, the the reason that God seems a long, long way away, and that people guess about Him, but they don't really know whether or not He's there, that's broken That that comes together because Jesus Christ not only died, but rose again, to show His power over death and sin, and because Jesus died, it's possible for any human being to be forgiven, and to be saved. One of the uh, best buys I ever made, I reckon, was this wee book, Fundamentals of the Faith, written by a great Scottish preacher called George Philip. He doesn't look much in that picture standing there with his wife, and uh, in fact, that's the only picture I could find anywhere of him, about 200 pixels high, because was a, he was a very um, humble man. But he preached for 39 years in one church and did a fantastic job there. He's one of the five people who, I think, revived the Scottish church after the Second World War. And he wrote as well. And his book, Fundamentals of the Faith, talks about the basic points of the Apostles' Creed, the things that Christians believe and why they're so important. And in his chapter on salvation and forgiveness, he talks about the story Jesus told of the lost sheep, the sheep that got away from the fold, and the way in which... The shepherd goes out into the wilderness and searches and searches until he finds it and brings it back. And Philip says this is what salvation's all about, about God putting an incredible value on your life. And he says this think of men and women who've plumbed the depths of iniquity and see God, the mighty Saviour in Jesus Christ, scouring the face of the earth looking for them. Can you imagine men and angels looking at God and asking, What are you hunting for with so earnest demeanour? Then eventually in some gutter or besotted place, some place of license and corruption, God finds the sheep that is lost. And the angels can tell, a look on his face, that he's found a priceless treasure. That's salvation. That's why Clark Park said, we want people to be saved, to be forgiven, to have your record swept clean, to be brought back into the sheepfold by the shepherd himself at the immense cost of his own life. That's what it's all about. And then Philip goes on in the book to tell the story of the prodigal son as well. And he says, Look, this is another picture that Jesus gives of just exactly what it means to be saved. The son has made all sorts of mistakes. He's got everything wrong. He has no right to be back in the father's house. And yet he's forgiven. He's accepted back. And Philip says that is the forgiveness of sin. It is quite astonishing. It's all about the God who takes you back when you have nothing to say for yourself, no means of justifying yourself, and no excuses to make for yourself. And God has you anyway. He doesn't accept you on the basis of a perfect church-going record or on the basis of 50 years of good deeds. He doesn't do it on the basis of you having a nice face or uh, good qualities or anything like that. He accepts you simply on the basis that Jesus died for you to pay your debt and now you can be rescued you can be saved you can be brought back and that's the miracle that needs to happen in everybody's life it's a miracle that christians have been talking about for two thousand years now and seeing in action all over the world and we've seen country after country where people have woken up to the grace of god like this philippian jailer and said i want to be saved too And so we've seen the Church of Jesus Christ grow from something very, very small, the Day of Pentecost, to something that's one of the biggest things in the world today. One person in four out of the world's population claims to be a follower of Jesus. (laughs) Now, a lot of them don't know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and uh, they're making a claim that, but still within that number, there is a vast number of people, greater than ever before in the world's history, who've discovered the truth of being rescued by God. For themselves, and of course it doesn't just stop with that miracle it goes on and uh, once you're rescued, once you're saved there's so much more that comes in the package as well uh, for one thing you're a child of the father you're not just swept clean by God you're not just told go away and don't do it again you become a child in his family with everything that that involves, your past is blotted out. You don't need to look back in guilt to the past. Because, uh, God promises there are sins and iniquities. I will remember no more. It's all gone. It's all finished. Your record is clean. And your future is certain. You know that beyond this life, just as Jesus conquered death and came back himself, you are now going to be an inheritor of a life that goes on and on throughout eternity. The spirit lives within you. A new power comes into your life that was never there before. Not just a power to do right, although that's part of it, but a power to know God and to enjoy Him and get to know Him as a father as well. All of that sort of thing starts happening because you are saved. You have a new nature. You start to want to do the right things instead of the wrong things. You find power against temptation, not all at once, but bit by bit. You start to become the kind of person that God always wanted you to be. There's a new joy, a new peace in your circumstances. You feel more secure in the world. You begin to understand that whatever happens with the climate crisis and Donald Trump and all the rest of it, it is important that we do need to be concerned about it. Whatever happens, you are secure. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. We're there in the heart of God forever and ever. You've got family everywhere. Right throughout the world, you have brothers and sisters of different cultures, different languages. People who have been brought up in a completely different way from you. But they're children of the same father. And as you get to know them, you begin to realize the wonder of what being saved actually does to people cross-culturally right across the world. You live with a new purpose. You know where you're going you're there to serve God you're there to do his will in the world you're not wandering aimlessly wondering what book that you should buy for the weekend or whatever what you're doing is something that's going somewhere because you're a child of the king he has a plan for your life that you never had before and it's all starting to happen in a new way and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in the New Testament says this means anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person the old life is gone and a new life has begun It's a complete miracle, a change of Now, next week we're going to be saying that this miracle still goes on. There are verses in the New Testament too that talk about you are being saved as well. And to make it really confusing, there are verses that talk about the day of our salvation as something future. One of these days, we will be saved. All we're talking about this morning is where it starts. You have been saved. You've been made over. Jesus pictured it as being born again, having a whole new life. And the same passage of 2 Corinthians 5 goes on to say, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. It's nothing to do with us. It's all to do with him. No wonder Great Parks wants to see this happening in people's lives, around Painton, around Devon, throughout the world, more and more and more. That is the first and most basic part of what this church is about. So the only question we still have to answer this morning, I guess, is this. How can you be saved, rescued, born again? Whatever terminology you use. Well, uh, to pull in another great writer of the last uh, generation is W.A. Criswell, who started the first Baptist Church of Dallas in America. Um, And it's a massive, massive church to which hundreds and possibly thousands of people have individually come to be saved, come to know God themselves. And Criswell was, was a tremendous evangelist, somebody who was great at leading people to Christ. And he says in one of his books that there are two words of salvation. He says this, Salvation is like a coin in that it has two sides. Both sides are vital in one's reconciliation to God. In other words, if you want to be saved, there are two important words, two things that need to happen. And he says and the one face of it is the word repent. The other face of it is the word believe. You often find those words connected in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 20, for example, you find the Apostle Paul talking to a bunch of Christians that he knows he's not going to see again. And he talks about his past record and what he's done and what they've seen him do because he wants them to do the same once he's gone. And he says, And so You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and believe in our Lord Jesus. Those two things belong together. Repent and believe. And that's all that's involved. It is that simple. You don't need to sign up to a program of some sort. I've had a... um, a WhatsApp message from my doctor this morning saying that uh, we believe that your body mass index is over 25 and therefore you're, you're, uh, you qualify for a, a new online training program which will help you lose some weight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, doctor. I didn't think my body mass was... Anything like that. But, anyway, no, no, no. but uh, you know, that, that's, they're saying you can lose weight, you can be a different person, you can be the new Slimline John Allen, but you must sign up for this online program. Not the same as being saved. You don't have to sign up for a program. You don't have to go online every uh, 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 week for a certain time for a certain number of weeks. You don't need to have a personal trainer say, how much have you lost this week? And stuff like that. Oh, by the way, they say, this is not Weight Watchers, you know, this is not a diet programme. You use what goes in your mouth, because you know how proud men are of their independence and stuff. But uh, it's just blokes having a good time together, but losing weight as well. Uh, I'm not saying whether I'll sign up for it or not, I'm still looking at it. But uh, nothing like that, in with salvation, it's so simple. Repent and believe. Just two things? Can it be that simple? Well, yes, but I understand what those two words mean. Because first, repent doesn't just mean regret. See, there are two words for repent in the New Testament, and one of them does just mean I regret what I've done. <laughs> that's the word that's used, for instance, in Matthew 27 about Judas when he sees what they're about to do to Jesus. He's just betrayed Jesus. He's done something that sounded like a good plan at the time, and it says that Judas repented when he saw what was happening to Jesus. And all it means is Judas felt sorry. What have I done? Oh, I was stupid. And of course, he did feel bad enough about it that he committed suicide but uh, it wasn't proper repentance repentance is turning round and going in a different direction and that's what the other word means in First Corinthians Paul talks about uh, it's 2 Corinthians Paul talks about a letter he sent to the Corinthians which we've now lost we don't know what it said and he says it was a hard hard letter to send you. but I don't mind that I sent it to you I don't regret it because it's produced such good results in your life I don't repent of that and so he's using that that word that just means regret. And sometimes that's all that people are prepared to do. The most popular song at British funerals nowadays, scandalously, I think, is Frank Sinatra's My Way. <laughs> and it talks about the way in which uh, you can live your life your way and do things the way you want them to be. And all he says about making mistakes is this. Regrets? I've had a few. But then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. That is not repentance. The other word for repentance, metanoia, means turning around and going in the opposite direction to where you have been. So to be saved, you have to be prepared for your life to be altered. You're serving a different leader. You're living in for a different set of priorities. You're following a different lifestyle than the one you used to do. And you can only do that by the grace of God because you can't change yourself. But if you're willing for God to give you the power and the grace to start living that way, you'll find it continues. That's repentance, turning around and going in the opposite direction. And the other thing to remember is the other word, believe, doesn't just mean accept to be true. (laughs) I mean, I believe in Julius Caesar in the sense that uh, I believe he actually historically existed. There's too much evidence not to believe in him. I believe in Donald Trump, I believe in Boy George, I believe in all sorts of people, because I know they exist. But there are some people who say, I believe in Donald Trump, and they mean a lot more than that. They believe that uh, they... They're saying that they believe every word he speaks. They're saying that they will follow him and be loyal to him, whatever happens over the next few years. Even if some of the 90-plus... Um, uh, a, a charges against him are justified and he's sent to prison, they'll still think he should be President of America. And uh, belief, is in their minds, is not just a matter of believing that Donald Trump exists, it's a matter of believing he's the future, he's the leader, he's the one I must follow. And so that's the, the way in which the word's used in the New Testament. A word that means just to believe in your head, but to put in action in your life, to stake your whole future on it. I mean, think of a girl getting about to get married. You go to her the night before and say, do you really want to marry this guy? I incidentally don't do this at home. It's not a good thing to do. Uh, Not a good result. But uh, she'll say to you, yes, I believe in him. Can he really provide for you? Well, we'll do it together, but I believe in him. How do you know he's not going to leave you for the first girl that comes along that looks more attractive than you do? I believe in him. And you won't talk her out of it because she's prepared to put her trust and our confidence in this person, for richer, for purer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. And that's the way it is, isn't it? Putting all your eggs into one basket, saying, I'm committed to you, I'm following you from now on. And that's what the Bible means by believing, trusting, committing yourself to it. Saying, well, if you let me down, I'm absolutely sunk because I'm committing all of my hopes to you. Repent and believe. That's all that's involved. Some people think it just does mean to believe in God. Well, if I believe in God, he's got to let me into heaven. That creates all sorts of problems. And um, You might think, well, I do keep trying to believe in him, but sometimes it's hard to credit he's there. As if being a Christian was just kind of hanging on to this. But yeah, there is a God. There, there's a good God. He's in charge of everything. I know it doesn't seem that way, but I believe in it. And you might think as well, well, what's the point of that? Why should that matter anyway? Why should God keep let you into heaven just because you keep on believing persistently? I don't believe you're there. I believe you're there against all the odds. And of course, that's not what it is. It's not believing in God with your head. It's taking your whole life and putting it in his hands and saying, you are the boss. I'm going to follow you in the future. And that's his great parts. It's what we want people to be all about. So the final question is just this, isn't it? Where are you in all this? If you've now been saved... If you've never been born again, I hope this has at least shown what an enormous difference it makes in life. And if you want to be part of what God is doing going through history that's opened up so many thousands and millions of lives down through the years, then find somebody and talk about it this morning. But my guess is that a lot of us are already saved people, people who already belong in the kingdom of God, And if that's the case, then the question to us, is: how committed are we to what Great Parks is trying to do? How much do we aim to allow people to see through us a different style, a different hope, a different life? You have to do it gradually sometimes because people uh, don't like being pressured, they don't like being battered by people, nagging them and all sorts of things. But you have to be available to people and identifiable as a Christian, as somebody who is is living in a way that communicates the grace of God and somebody who's prepared to stand up and witness to where you stand uh, when that's appropriate. (coughs) And you need to pray for people as well. well. That's a really sneaky thing we can do, isn't it? To pray that the miracle will happen in people's lives and sometimes it doesn't happen for a long time, but God answers prayer, and people do suddenly find the grace of God that you never expected to become Christians in the first place. Being saved, being rescued, moving from death to life, there is nothing more important, and that's why it's where it is uh, in Great Parks Vision Statement. John, am I finishing this, or are you coming back up in a minute? You'll come back up. Okay, in that case, just a very, very quick prayer, and then John will finish the service for us. Heavenly Father, as we think about some of the most important things in the Bible, we pray two things really. We pray first that you will help us, if we're not yet on the right side of the question, to be rescued. To allow ourselves to be saved by the grace of God, by the tremendous act of sacrifice that Jesus did when he died on the cross. And second, we pray that if that's happened to us, you won't let it go cold in us. Keep us moved and enthralled by the wonder of what's happened to us and filled with the love of God that just wants to take that out to other people and help them to enjoy it too. Ask it for your namesake. Amen.